We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9 today. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Short. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can't thank you enough for your love for us. You, you went beyond what we could have expected. We never could have imagined such love. No one could have come up to you and say, would you die on the cross, Jesus? Father, would you send your son? And then would you send us the Holy Spirit to dwell within sinners so that they are enabled to walk righteously and do that which pleases you? Who could have come up with such a plan? And then after all is said and done, would you resurrect us from the dead and then make us live in, in the presence of our Holy Savior to be his bride forever? Who would have ever thought of such a thing? Lord, you are an amazing God. We are taken aback with your glory, with your love, with your compassion, with your faithfulness, with your justice and all that you are. And I pray that as we meditate on this passage, that you would open our hearts, open our minds, stamp your word in our hearts, make us doers of your word. We don't want to deceive ourselves to thinking we are okay by simply knowing the verse and living any which way. Deliver us from that kind of deception. Thank you for everyone who has joined this Zoom gathering. You know their needs, you know their situation. Strengthen every family. Glorify your name. For Liette, we pray. For that wonderful woman who has asked for prayers, is in the hospital right now and needs intervention. Lord, lay your hand on her so that she will not lose the capacity to speak or to swallow. Lord, stay that cancer, we ask. Be glorified in her life. Draw her to yourself. And we ask this in the precious and glorious name of our Lord. Amen. In Scripture, we are told in, in a very clear, unmistakable fashion that the Lord expects from his people certain works. He expects fruit from his people. That's one of the reasons why the Lord shut Israel into unbelief because they refused to bring forth the required fruit. And now there's a new vine, which is Jesus Christ. And all those who are grafted into him are required to bring fruit. And the father prunes us using trials, using the word, using fellowship in many other ways prunes us so that we can bring even more fruit. In fact, Jesus said in John 15, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. What an important verse this is. The church is not saved to simply wait around for the rapture, to simply wait around for Jesus to take us home. We are saved to be the light and the salt in this world. And we do that with works, with good works. The world is in darkness. And that's why Jesus commissioned his disciples to go into all the world, not just to Israel. Everywhere, and these were Jews. They were 
They were shocked by this. Go into all the world, make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. And what did we see Jesus commanding his disciples? To go and to preach the gospel and then to meet the needs of those who are hurting. Paul, in writing is to the church in Ephesus, and we're going to revisit this verse at the end. In Ephesians 2, verse 10, says this, We, meaning the church, God's people, we are his workmanship. In other words, we are his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So he saves us, and then he says, here are the works that I've prepared for you. Walk into that position of doing those works. But many believers, unfortunately, and I could say even my, myself for a time, we thought, oh, we're saved. We're okay. Now let's do our own thing. Now let's look for ways to just prosper on earth and live a comfortable life and think about our families and you know save our RSPs and our, have our life insurance and whatever else and enjoy family, enjoy life. And that's not why we're here. Once we're saved, we have a different paradigm, a different perspective. Look at history, and you will see how seriously the church took the words of Jesus to heart. The church was engaged in meeting whatever pressing need there arose in society. They infiltrated the world, right? They infiltrated, and while they're being mistreated, while they're being persecuted, they are serving. The governments many times didn't care about the poor. Not many times, often. They didn't care about orphans. They didn't care about widows. They didn't care about the sick. Governments were interested in ruling. The Roman Empire was there to rule. They didn't care if you were sick. They didn't care if you were poor and everything else. Ruling was the, the name of the game. The church, while being persecuted, was involved and helping the needy, and helping the poor, and helping the elderly, and helping the sick. That's what they were doing constantly. The church was there meeting pressing needs. Hospitals arose because of the church. Then governments kicked in and said, well, you know what? This is a beautiful institution. We'll take over. Orphanages arose because of the church. But then the government said, oh, you know what? We'll kick in here too. And the church, from ruling only, became a a state that managed these social services, education. Who started it? The church, right? To make sure that everybody would get education. You could look through history. You'll see examples after example of this. I'm not gonna, I don't have the time to go into it. But then the governments kicked in and said, oh, we'll take this and manage it as well. And the government became more of a socialist type of government instead of simply ruling and imposing its will and making sure people pay taxes and anyone that was an insurrectionist or anyone that tried to go against the government, they would be wiped out. The government shifted its focus and not only ruled, but then became, cons became concerned with also social issues. And in a way it's good, but that was never the intention of government. So when I'm saying the church, I don't mean the institution. I mean people, believers, started to go out and do things that no one would have expected them to do. Now, 
Um, another way the early church distinguished itself was in hospitality. Hospitality. The verse we just read speaks about being hospitable. Now, when we understand hospitality, it's totally different from what scripture says. Hospitality was sacred and unique in the days of Jesus and in ancient Middle East. Let's imagine you're living in a town and uh, your child gets sick. There are no doctors. Doctors weren't around, there were no hospitals. So what do you do? You look at your child and you pray to God, if you know God, or you pray to anyone else, to other gods, and you see your child getting worse. And you hear of doctors about 50 kilometers away in another town. That's all there were. There's some doctors scattered here and there. Many doctors weren't even trusted. And those were doctors, were doctors for the rich. So you, you, out of despair, you go to your friend's house, and say, can you lend me your donkey? I need to bring my son, he's seriously ill, to a, a town 50 kilometers away. There was no way of advising someone 50 kilometers away that you were going. And there was no way that person who, or anyone who lived 50 kilometers away would know that you were coming, right? So you put your kid on this, on this cart, whatever you had, the best means possible, and you rode all the way. That's how Mary and Joseph ended up in Bethlehem because Caesar imposed a census. They had to go back to their town of origin. And Joseph's town of origin was Bethlehem. So they traveled all the way from Nazareth, and it was a treacherous trip, a dangerous trip, infested with bandits. And when they got there, they didn't know who would receive them. That's what happened regularly. Now, you say, weren't there inns? Yes, there were inns in major towns. There were, not everywhere. But these inns were dangerous places. Bandits would raid them. They would steal your goods because there was, they knew there was nobody there to protect you. Right? So the best place to go would be to someone's home. So imagine you, you're living in this other town and you see this lady with, or this couple, with their dragging this cart and they're saying, where are you going? She says, well, our son is sick. We're trying to find a uh, doctor here in this town. We heard about this doctor. We don't even know if he's here, if it is true. They, 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 everything went around like this. You know, there was no Facebook, obviously. There was no phones. There was nothing. So the family that heard about this would say, why don't you stay over with us? until you find this doctor, take care. This was a major imposition. This was revolutionary. Christians did this continuously. That's how the church stood out. It was remarkable. Church, Christians stepped up, they opened their homes, much like a hotel, and they received weary, worn travelers from all over the places as they would receive Christ himself. Let me share something briefly from my own life. When I was 22 years of age, I went to Italy. I didn't know where I was going, really. I just know the school. No one knew me there. And um, I didn't know anyone either. This was in Rome. And when I got there, I had very little money in my pocket. I'm not going to go into the reasons why, but I had very little money in my pocket. And I really didn't know how I would fend for myself month after month. I just trusted the Lord Whatever little faith I had, I placed it in him. And uh, people looked at me and said, oh, he's Canadian. Most people would say that. He's Canadian, so he must have money. He, he can take care of himself. He can go to restaurants. And Now, the school I was in, Instituto Biblico Italiano, they provided meals throughout the week, and there was a bed. And they basically received whatever the student was able to afford. I explained my situation to them, and I gave them what I could afford, and they knew that. 
And then I, every weekend, I didn't know where I was going. Everyone in that school had a family, had a friend in Rome, except for me. I would go to church in the morning. And then after the gathering, I would lower my head and make my way back to school and not know who I was going to be with. Or, and then someone would walk up to me and say, hey, John. They used to enjoy calling me John. They didn't call me by an Italian name. Go figure. They say, John, where are you eating today? And I said, oh, I'm eating at school. Of course, I had nothing prepared. I didn't even know what to cook. He says, why don't you come over? Stay with us for today. And then you go to school tonight. And I would look at them and say, no, there's no need. He says, please, we insist. They would receive me into their homes. And these people were not rich. They were not wealthy individuals. They barely made it for themselves. And they would put on a spread for me because they knew someone was coming and they had the privilege of hosting me. I was a nobody. I wasn't a preacher. I was, I was a student. And they would do this every single week. God would open a heart, a touch of heart here, open a home there. Throughout my five years of living there, this happened more than words could tell. Not because I was special, not because I was important. I was a nobody. I could not repay them back. I haven't repaid them back. I haven't been able to. There are times I've gone back to Italy and I've preached there and I've thanked them from the bottom of my heart. I would remember their kindness and their generosity. Never once was there a wealthy family that would do this. It was always those who had less, who didn't have enough even for themselves. They would take something that they had saved for themselves and they would put it in front of me. I didn't know. But sometimes I'd go with another brother and then he would tell me as we were leaving and he told me, did you know what they just did? They didn't eat that piece of meat so that you could have it. This happened regularly. Today, I was going over these thoughts this morning and I started to weep thinking about the, the brothers in Italy and how kind they were and how they went out of their way for me. Now, I could say that they were kind because they had the, their doctrine down packed. Unfortunately, there are many areas in their doctrine that they were lacking, but they had such a love for the Lord and a love for the church that was just astounding. Um, they put into practice what Jesus said. We find his words in Luke chapter 14 from verse 12, when Jesus said these words. Now, he went on to say to the ones who had invited him. So and I imagine they invited Jesus. But why did they invite Jesus? Well, Jesus by this time was popular, right? Whenever you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends. Now that's pretty straightforward. Don't invite your friends, your brothers. Don't invite your family. Your relatives, don't invite your wealthy neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you to a meal in return. And that will be your repayment. Since that's how you're going to be repaid. You will get nothing for that in heaven. But whenever you give a banquet, whenever you have a meal, invite people who are poor, who have disabilities, who are limping, People who are blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. 
for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. How many of us are actually doing this? There are works that please the Lord. Having a head knowledge means nothing. Receiving someone that we like, people that we know, and people that we are that are related to us, or people that can we can get something from because they're wealthy or because they're, they have a position in some company, and we could use them to get a position in that company as well. That's not the kind of works that pleases God. It means inviting those that are different from us, that don't think the way we think, that don't know the Lord. It means inviting those who cannot repay us. The church is called to show this kind of hospitality. This is what pleases the Lord. Let me put this within a greater framework. I'm going to go to an Old Testament story to illustrate this in a powerful way. We're going to see in this story, ultimate hospitality. Um, There's a story of David, King David. We all know it. After Saul finally dies, he becomes king. He waited years to finally become king. God had anointed him through the prophet Samuel as king many years earlier as a young boy. But only later did he become king. And... um, one day as he is in his palace, his kingdom is established, people love him, and you know God is using him, and he's writing psalms. He says, um, is there anyone in the house of Jonathan? Jonathan was um, Saul's son, right? So this Saul was his mortal enemy. He hated, Saul hated David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, had made an oath with David. And so Jonathan is David, uh, is dead rather, and and, he, and David says, is there anyone from Jonathan's house that I can show kindness to? Is anyone alive? Anyone? And he said, you want to show kindness to who? You don't do that. Anybody from your the previous reign, any ruler, any descendant, typically would be just wiped out. You didn't want any rivalry. You don't want any competition. You didn't want any trouble. These guys were trouble. But David is thinking differently. Every other king in those times would wipe out the previous rulers and their families, right? Period. Except for the wives. Women were not wiped out. But all the men wiped out. But David is saying something else. And so finally someone comes up and goes, well, there's a guy he's hiding, I think, in Lodbar. His name is Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth? Never heard of him. Go find them. Get them. Bring them here. I can imagine when these chariots came uh, rolling down the roads. Mephibosheth is terrified. He knew. This is what they do. They find the descendants, wipe them out. He's hiding. He's poor. He's got nothing. He's a dog. Who knows how many times he had cursed David and cursed um, uh, him profusely from his heart. They stop. They find where he lives. They go to the house. They open the door, Mephibosheth, and trembling, he's there. And they see that he's lame. He can't even walk. Say, why would David want this guy? Anyways, they just take him, they put him into the chariot, and they haul him off to Jerusalem. They bring him into the royal palace. And then meanwhile, David is somewhere else, and they said, Mephibosheth is here. 
He is. He goes, he runs into the court. He sees Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is terrified. The king is happy. There's, there's a contrast of emotions. Everybody's looking, he goes, what is going on? Does he want to kill him here? Is that what he wants to do? Does he want to make an example of him so everyone knows that he is a just king, that he is not going to let anyone challenge him? This is what he says to Mephibosheth, this dog, this poor, wretched, vile man who was full of hatred and curses towards David. This is what he says, 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 7 and 8. And then David, David said to him, first word, do not be afraid. Of course he had to say that. The guy's shaking like a leaf, right? He wasn't expecting mercy. He was expecting death, right? Period. For I will assuredly show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. He said, I'm going to be kind to you. Because of this oath. And I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul. Now, Saul was wealthy. He had become wealthy. He's telling him, you're not going to be poor from this moment on. You are going to be wealthy, rich. In fact, he gives them also the servants. They used to serve King Saul. So they were serving Mephibosheth. In a moment, he became wealthy. And you, he doesn't say, I can go home. I'm going to let you live. Don't worry about it. Don't be my way. Don't, don't start an insurrection against me. He doesn't say that. And you yourself shall eat at my table. I can imagine anybody in, the court, in, that, in that royal court looking at each other. Is he out of his mind? What's he do? Who, what does this guy have that he takes him like this? This guy's nothing. He's lame. Who is he that he should be treated like a king's son? That's what the angels do when they see God being merciful to us. God saying, you are going to sit at my table. I will love you like I love Jonathan. Jonathan is like Jesus. He's a picture of Jesus. David is a picture of the father. And Mephibosheth, that's you. That's you. And he's telling you, I'm going to show kindness for my son's sake, Jesus. I'm going to receive you and I'm going to treat you like my son. Now, of course, we don't deserve that. There's no way we deserve this. There's no way we deserve to be seated in heavenly places. No way to have our debts forgiven. No way to be made rich. Who are we that we were made rich like this? That the unsearchable riches of Christ will be ours. Who are we? David's kindness is totally unexpected. Totally out of sync with the times. He did something no one would have ever done. The father did more. He doesn't treat us as sons. He made us sons. And he made us son by making his son a slave. And by allowing Jesus to go through the most horrific death while staying back so that he could receive you at his table. Because your sins kept you away from him. And he had to make a way so that his elect could sit at the table. And for Christ's sake, we are now forgiven. We are now welcomed. We are now <clears throat> rich. Our debts have been removed, canceled. 
That's why Paul in Ephesians says very clearly, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. We are blessed. So we pray this way, Lord, bless so and so, bless. But the blessings that are ours already in Christ. Our prayer should be said, Lord, reveal the blessings that are ours in Christ. So David's kindness is a picture, a faint picture of God's mercy towards us and the way he received us. He's the host that welcomes us into his palace. We don't deserve it at all. We are rich beyond measure. We are now heirs of God. All that belongs to the Son belongs to us, co-heirs with Christ. Think about it. All his riches are ours. So no matter what your status here on earth is, it makes no difference. The richest man on earth is a beggar at best when compared to the, any child of God, a beggar. The riches that are ours are beyond description. That's ultimate, ultimate hospitality. So what does Jesus say to, his, to us and to his disciples then? Freely you have received, freely give. When we show hospitality to others, when we bless others, not those who are like us, not that we like, not that we think are, you know, I think he has needs or, you know, not that we can assess things on our own, but that when we actually go our way and bless others, that's when we're being like our Lord. That's when we are following his commands. You can see now why Christianity swept over the ancient world like a tidal wave, like a tidal wave, transforming the empire completely. It was unstoppable. Christians doing good, being hospitable, loving their neighbors while they were being mistreated and while they're being persecuted. The more they were hated, the more these Christians loved. Inviting people like us, being hospitable to family and friends is good. It's not wrong, it's good, but it doesn't reflect the heart of God at all. Jesus tells us how to reflect the heart of God. In Matthew 5, verse 46, we read, For if you love those who love you, means your family, your friends, people that are acquainted with you. What reward do you have? There is no reward for that. God is not going to give a reward to anybody who was a good father. People say, hey, he was a good father. God is going to, no, there's no reward for that. Even the tax collectors, that means the people who are the most despised, they do that too, he says. Do they not do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, because greetings was reserved only for those who were like them, and your sisters, what more are you doing than others, even the Gentiles? And the Gentiles were those outside of the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. Even Gentiles do that. It says, therefore, you shall be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's what's required of the church. We are going to be different, Jesus says. You are not like the rest. Those are the works I expect from you. It's very clear. There is no two ways about it. It's easy to be kind and generous with, with people like us. Give gifts to those who can give you a gift or have given you something. Pagans do that, Jesus is saying. Gentiles do that. Everybody does that. Even though a criminal does that. 
take a mobster. They give gifts to people that they appreciate because they've helped them and so forth. You're going to be different. You Jews, devout Jews, are not doing anything different than the rest of the world. You're no better than them. This is what I want. I want you to invite people who are limping. I want you to invite people who are blind. I want you to invite people who are sick. People. I want you to be in their lives. I want you to be involved. That's what I expect from my disciples. That's what we are to do. And the church did that. The early church did that. They did it powerfully. They did it without flinching. They were dedicated to this. They, some of them lost their homes, but they kept doing this. They kept serving. They kept giving their lives for those who were in need. But the worst instances where churches uh, regressed. They regressed to their old ways. Uh, you'll remember how when, when we went through the book of Acts, or Acts chapter 2, rather, verse 42, it says that um, they broke bread in homes. And then we read on from there that no one said, this is mine, but they started sharing. They started caring for the needy, the orphans, the widows, and the poor. They were really engaged in doing this. They knew this pleased the Lord. But then these early Christians were persecuted. They were Jews, and they didn't know. They didn't want to stay there. Many of them just scattered, and they went all over the empire, and they tried to hide. And they tried to hide away from their Jewish brethren. But in their gatherings, they became like everyone else. We read about it in James chapter 2. Now, James is a letter written to Jewish Christians. James himself was the half-brother of Jesus and the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he's writing to these Jewish believers who are scattered all over the empire. Um, and he says this, my brothers, in verse 1 of chapter 2, my brothers and sisters, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. He's just repeating what Jesus had been teaching while Jesus was still on earth. Now, Jesus is in heaven, and James is continuing the message. For if a man comes into your assembly, now, he's talking about the gathering of the saints, with a gold ring and is dressed in bright clothes, and a poor man in dirty clothes also comes in, you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the bright clothes. And you say, sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down on my footstool. You're giving preference to the rich, he's saying. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? What's the motivation behind all that? The motivation is, oh, I deserve this guy in my company. I want to be with him. He's got money or he's got a degree or whatever else. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, did God not choose the poor? Notice who he elects, the poor. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the good name by which you have been called? And if you read the chapter one, verse one, you will see that James was a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't call himself half-brother of Jesus. He's a servant, he's a bond servant to the 12 tribes, means to the Jews, who are dispersed abroad. What happened to this church? This church began as a church, in Acts chapter 2, as a giving church. 
as a generous church, as a church involved with the poor, with the widows, with the orphans. But now they reverted back to being like everyone else. And this was the church. This was the church. We'll go back to the story of Mephibosheth. Let's imagine him for a moment. We're going to add to the story. This is another scripture I'm about to tell you. Let's imagine he's at King David's table. He's honored. He feels, my goodness, I can't believe it. He's treating me like a son. Look how wealthy I am. I can't believe it. I'm rich. Look at the servants called Ziba. He's serving me with all his sons and everybody. And, and, and I don't understand it. I just don't understand it. Nobody does this. And he's looking at David. And he loves him. And he's thankful. And he wants to know more about David. He's asking questions. And he's just, just intrigued. And then he goes telling everybody, David is different from any other king. He received me. Look at me. I'm lame. I can't even walk. I'm a disgrace. Look at me. But he receives me every day. He gets up from his chair. He comes and he hugs me. He honors me as the most honored guest at his table. And all... Everyone else in the court honored me because of David's treatment of me. And then you see him about a year later. He's in his luxurious chariot and they're pulling him away down the road and everybody's saying, who's that? That's Mephibosheth, really? And then this poor man comes up to Mephibosheth. He's in rhymes and doesn't have much. Mephibosheth says, Sorry, I have nothing to give you. He goes on. What happens in that case? What happens when David hears of that? And that's what many Christians do today. Many Christians. We've been forgiven in ways we cannot begin to imagine. We have been chosen by God. He sent out his servants, called us, brought us into his royal palace. We've been made rich. We are his sons. We're not treated as sons. We are his sons. Then we turn around to those around us and say, "Ah, you know, I don't know if they really have, uh, there's a need there. I'm not sure. You know, well, let's think it over. Let me tell you what happens to those of us who behave this way, because it shows that we haven't understood grace. That's what it shows. We may call ourselves Christians, but we don't understand it. Because someone who's overwhelmed with God's grace cannot but be generous. This is what will happen in that day when we stand before the Lord. It says in Matthew chapter um, 25, I think it is. I don't, I don't believe I have the right reference here. Matthew 25. And at verse, starting from verse 34. Then the king, that's Jesus, imagine David, now put yourself in Mephibosheth's shoes. Then the king will say to those on his right, and those are the sheep, come, you are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But why? Because the doctrine was right? No. This is why. For I was hungry, 
and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him. They were totally oblivious. They're just doing this because they were transformed. There's no other way to explain it because they weren't keeping tabs on what they were doing. They'll say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did it to me. Powerful words. They're welcomed into heaven because of what they did, not because of what they believed. Look at verse 41. Now he speaks to the rest. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you accursed people into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So why are they sent into hell? I was hungry. You gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You did not invite me in. I was naked. You did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison. You did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or as a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And then he will answer them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me either. These will go away into eternal punishment. The righteous the ones engaged in good works, actively engaged into eternal life. These words reveal the premium Jesus places on good works. It is not an optional thing. Not an optional thing. You cannot think for a moment that doctrine is enough. We have the right doctrine. If we're not engaged in good works, we are deceiving ourselves. We don't know the Lord. Satan knows the doctrine perfectly. Perfectly. He knows it better than the best theologian. Better than anyone. But he doesn't do any good works. Because he's a thief, a murderer, a liar. Right doctrine is important. Because it shows us what God did for us. We need to understand. But once we are illuminated with that doctrine, then we are engaged in good works. Only the dying thief on the cross does not, did not have any good works to follow his faith. Because he had no time. Everybody else who is still a Christian needs to be serious about good works. For this reason, James says in chapter 5, verse 14, what use is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, may the Lord bless you, whatever, and be filled. Yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? In the same way, faith also, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. I'll say, show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Demons also believe, and they shudder. But are you willing to acknowledge, you foolish person, that faith without works is useless? Useless. Are we saved by faith alone? Yes. We are saved by faith alone. And I'm going to illustrate this with a story from the scriptures. But are we saved by a faith that is alone? James says, no. Are we saved by faith alone? Yes. But are we saved by a faith that is alone, that is not accompanied by works? No. No. Too many Christians are okay with believing. They gather, they sing, they read their scriptures daily, and they live for themselves. That kind of a Christian won't make it. Won't make it. Doesn't matter how much theology they know. If we don't abound in good works, we do not. If we're not engaged in the lives of those who are hurting, we are deceiving ourselves. We are no better than the pagans who do not know the Lord. So, what are some of the works we are to abound in? Well, in our text today, it speaks of hospitality. Saint John, hospitality. We, we can't even receive our own family in our homes. How can we be hospitable? It means, like the church has been doing throughout the ages, means finding those who are in need and meeting that need. And someone is genuinely saved, he and she will do that. They will not deceive themselves into thinking that just because they made a prayer and they're reading the Bible and doing nothing and getting engaged in the lives of the hurting, that they're okay. They will not. That is deception of the utmost kind. We can exercise hospitality under these circumstances. There have been Christians at LCF that have gone out of their way to help someone who's in need. They have placed boxes of food in their cars. They've driven to someone's home and they've brought food to them. This is, be, this is done because we are, are know that if we don't do it, we're disobeying the Lord. And we need to excel at this. We shouldn't be doing this sporadically. We should be doing this regularly. We should look for ways on how to meet those who are abandoned, who are forgotten from society and from government. The government has taken over different institutions, such as, like I said earlier on, like healthcare and education and, and the elderly, making sure the elderly are taken care of, that there are others that are falling through the cracks that no one thinks about. And the church can rise up and shine for Christ's sake. We can be like the father, like King David was towards Matthew said, we can do the same thing and bless them. There are a million ways to serve others. The key is not to close ourselves off from everyone and live in our own doctrinal bubble. 
the church that isolates itself is not the church of Jesus Christ. Now, some Christians are isolating themselves, and then there are other Christians that are fighting to meet in a local. I don't know if the Lord's ever going to say, I was not able to meet in a local, but you insisted, come into the kingdom prepared for you. There's no such thing. The early church had no building, but they were the church. We can be the church regardless of the building. We don't need a building to be the church. Doesn't matter how little we have. Doesn't matter if we're we're nobody. There's someone in our midst, you know very well, Darlene. What does she have? But there she is blessing others, thinking about others, giving to others constantly. And you say, well, that's her gift. That is how we should be moving. That's the direction we need to be going. Don't wait to serve because it's convenient. Don't wait for it to be COVID free. Don't wait for something to happen in your life and then you're going to be doing something. Don't wait for the ducks to line up. That's ridiculous. Look at throughout the bubonic plague. The only people who were serving the sick and in the process dying, some of them, were Christians. Everyone else was running away. And that was a far worse thing than COVID-19. That's how we shine light. We can't take the light and hide it under a bushel. And that bushel could be anything. We could hide it under doctrine. We could hide it under a church building. There are many churches, buildings, that just are great at coming together and having a wonderful program. And then they give peanuts. Peanuts when it comes to helping the needy and the poor. Does that please the Lord? I read a verse at the beginning. It says that we are his workmanships and we were created for these works that he prepared beforehand for us. He chose us, he elects us, he saves us, and he says, these are works. Do them, be zealous. I want to see you doing these works. I'm enabling you. I'm giving you the grace to do it. Do the works. We're going to read that same verse, but instead we're going to start from verse 8. We're going to go two verses up. This verse we know very well. We've repeated this verse. We've uh, preached on this verse. This verse is a verse that we know by heart. It says in Ephesians 2 verse 8, For by grace you've been saved. I think of Mephibosheth. Grace, it's pure grace. That's what he received. He didn't ask for this. He didn't even think about it. He knew he couldn't expect it. He knew there was nothing that the king could have done to him but kill him. By grace, you've been saved. Through faith. And you believed it. You believed that message. And you said, wow, amazing. God gave you the grace to believe because even that faith is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. See the word again, works. In other words, you can't come before the Lord and say, you've got to receive me. Look at the works I've done for you. You can't. I'm going to explain this more. So that no one may boast, you cannot come before God and say, you have to receive me. That's why the poor, the people who have nothing, have a, a head start on those who have something. And then it says, for we are his workmanship. Where's masterpiece? He saved us. He took us from this vile, filthy gutter and he brought us into his palace. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. He saves us, not by our, for our works, not because we've done good things, but he saves us 
because we acknowledge we are miserable sinners. And once he saves us, then he says, now do good works. This should flow from you. You're the branch and the vine. Let the works multiply. That's why the Father prunes us. Are there trials in your life? It's because good works are to come from that. People are so Christians many times, we're just licking our wounds when we're going through a trial. That's not the reason why trials come. They come so that we can reproduce Christ-likeness and become generous and, and giving and serving and laying down our lives in good works. Let me explain this. Let me illustrate this with a, with a passage, a story from scriptures. In Luke 19, we find the story of Zacchaeus. We will read it because of time. Just let's read this together. Luke 19, verses 1 to 10, and then we'll close. And Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. And chief tax collectors worked for Rome. A regular tax collector worked for Herod. They were vilified, but not as much as chief tax collectors. They were the scum of the earth. They had to walk around with bodyguards because there's zealots that were these Jewish fanatics, Zionists, carried swords and they would try to kill them because they were seen as traitors of, uh, of God's people who were siding with Rome. They were Jews who sided with Rome and they were just the scum of the earth. So he was a chief tax collector and he was just trying to see who Jesus was. That's all. That's all he wanted to do. And he was unable due to the crowd because he was short in stature. And so he ran on ahead. He figured out the trajectory. He ran on ahead. He climbed up a sycamore tree in order to see him. And because he was about to pass through that way, he knew Jesus couldn't have gone any other way, but that's the road. There were no other alternatives. So he placed himself in this tree. Sycamore tree had, uh, it was a bushy tree. So basically Jesus or anyone else couldn't see him for that matter. Because if they would see him, they would probably start cursing him. And it says that when Jesus came to the place, he looked up, he stopped. And said, Zacchaeus, calls him by name. Hurry, come down, for today I must stay at your house. Zacchaeus did not. Why didn't he just go through the crowd and walk up to Jesus? They would have killed him. They, could, they couldn't do that. He knew they were, he, he was hated. But more importantly, he knew he didn't deserve anything from Jesus. He saw himself as a pathetic sinner. Not because so much people said it, because he knew his heart. Otherwise, he would have walked up to Jesus. You always see this in Gentiles, by the way, Syrophoenician woman, the centurion. They never say, no, no, don't come in my house. I'm not worthy. The Jews were always coming up to Jesus. Hey, look at me. Look at my, look, look. I've, I've followed the law right from my childhood. But not Gentiles. They would never do that. They would, they saw themselves as outsiders, as unfit, as unworthy. And, 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 and tax collectors, especially. They knew they were hated. They couldn't even walk into the temple. They would come near the temple. They would be, they would be vilified. So you come near here, and we'll put you to death. They couldn't go. They were Jews, but they couldn't go. So he knew he wasn't worthy. He felt it. And Jesus stops and tells this unworthy man, "Come down. I'm coming to your house." And he hurried down. He came down and received him joyfully. He was shocked. 
This is Mephibosheth again. Just because he was wealthy, it had, he had the same heart. He's shocked. He receives him joyfully. And when the people, who were the people? The other Jews. The other Jews saw this. They all, notice everybody. I, I think even the disciples must have complained here. What is Jesus doing? Does he know who this guy is? He's the worst in our midst. They began all to complain, saying, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. But Zacchaeus stopped. As you're walking to his house, he stopped. And he turns and says, behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'm giving to the poor. And if I've extorted anything from anyone, I'm giving back four times as much. Is Zacchaeus saved for his works? No, he's aware that he's a sinner. He's, he's aware, not because people reminded him, but because he knew God had given him the grace to see the vileness, the wretchedness of his soul. That's why he runs to the tree and he runs up the tree and he hides and he's looking, just wants to see Jesus. See, see I can't go near that man. There's no way. I'm not worthy. I'm a sinner. I'm vile. I, I wish I could just talk to him. I wish I could just hear him. I can't. Nobody's going to let me. And he's just waiting there. And then Jesus stops. He's not saved by works. There are no works to present. He's not like the rich young ruler in chapter 18. It says, I followed the law right from my childhood. How arrogant, how self-righteous. And that's when Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down. You're one of mine. And everybody's complaining. Everybody. And then we see the works that follow faith. The works that follow belief. Half of everything I have, I'm giving away. And if I've stolen anything, I'm going to give them four times as much. That was what was required according to the law in Leviticus. He was following the law. That's what happens when we're transformed. That's what happens when we're saved. We don't lick our wounds. We don't look at ourselves in the eye, through the eyes of the people. We start being generous. We start loving the needy. We start putting our money where our mouth is. We start, I believe in you. You've been incredibly generous with me. I am going to give to, other, to others. That's Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. Described right there. That's how the passage is, is understood. Some of us are just, are just, we believe, but we're not generous. We're not involved in the lives of others. We're looking only after our family. You know what? You need to repent. In fact, as a church, we all need to repent. We all need to say, Lord, we haven't done enough to reflect the heart of God. We're all Mephibosheths. We all deserve to be banished. But you received us into your kingdom and we're going to be generous. We're going to bless others. We're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves but it is the gift of God. And now, we, because we are your workmanship, we're going to do those works that you have prepared beforehand. So what can we do? You know, someone who's on your street and can't shovel, shovel their snow. You know, someone's on your street and is alone, call them. Bake for them. Use your gifts to bless others. Let's not just isolate ourselves in our cocoon. 
God deliver us from being that kind of a church, a little Christian club. Let's bless those around us. Let's minister to them. You can't walk into the house, stay outside and talk to them. Do whatever. Use your gifts. Use what you have. Zacchaeus had money, he gave it. Use what you have and bless others. Don't let COVID-19 be the excuse for you to do nothing. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for, first of all, convicting me with these verses, for I've been repenting and repenting, and I thank you for that. And I pray that all yours, who, all those who are yours, who have been saved by grace through faith, would respond in the same way by being hospitable, by serving those around them, by ministering to the hurting, by looking out for those who are different, for those who are not like them, for those who cannot repay them, and just blessing them. That's what you did with us. That's what you did with us. We were most unworthy, and you've placed us at the table with the Father. You paid such a price for that. You who were rich became poor. You bankrupted yourself. You became a slave so that we could be sons of God and be rich. What amazing love. Forgive our small hearts toward others. Forgive our blindness. Forgive, Lord, that we are just doing puny little things just to appease our conscience. Forgive us of that. Convict us. Draw us closer to yourself. We want to obey you all the way. Deliver us from half-hearted obedience, from self-deception. We don't want to be amongst that number that will hear, you never visited me. I was naked. You never clothed me. I was thirsty. You never gave me to drink. I was in prison. You never came to see me. Lord, deliver us and deliver us from excuses and help us to serve and multiply these works for your glory, for your namesake. May we be the church in COVID-19 season, the church that you've called us to be for your glory, I pray. Amen.